1: With over seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to
0: Dress. The History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear.
1: We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Okay, get ready, dress listeners, because today we are about to go cross-genre. That is right. For some of you,
0: today's episode might just combine two of your favorite types of podcasts, and that is fashion history, of course, and April, we are officially entering the true crime marketplace. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep.
0: April stumbled across this story we are about to share today, Dress listeners, and she just immediately started sending me text messages about how this may very well be the 1860s version of the recent Netflix documentaries, Tender Swindlers, and then the docu-series Bad Vegan, which, of course, if you're not familiar, are about con artists, and how they, like, extorted people for basically millions of dollars. So the trial of Madame Rachel in London, 1868, was front-page news at the time, and coverage of the scandal reached as far as New Zealand. People were simply captivated.
1: But before we get to the infamous Madame Rachel, I'd actually like to share how I came across her story, because this connects back to a past episode of Dressed. Some of you might recall in our episode with Eilise Carter, entitled Red Menace, How Lipstick Changed the Face of American History, she and I briefly chatted about this makeup practice known as enameling. It was somewhat of an odd phenomenon, and it was practiced in a very specific time period during the late 19th century, and women would essentially enamel themselves with thick white paint in the quest for perfect, unblemished skin. (laughs) <laughs> it does not
0: sound quite comfortable, does it? No. <laughs> in her book, Facing Beauty, Painted Women and Cosmetic Art, fashion historian Eileen Ribeiro describes this process. And she writes, quote, whereby wrinkles and marks on the skin were filled in with lead or arsenic paste... And then the face and neck were painted and powdered. The first references date from the 1770s, and it became a popular beauty technique in the fashionable and stage world to emphasize the transparency of the skin, especially on formal occasions. Women might paint their veins, and this included their eyelids, with blue paste of chalk tinted with indigo or Prussian blue, one of the earliest synthetic dyes, end quote.
1: Oh. My, you might proclaim, and you would be absolutely right. At the time, writers commented on the frozen mask-like effect that the technique produced and joked that women's faces were, quote, crusted over with plaster of Paris, end quote. Do you have pictures of this, by the way? So when Eilise and I chatted, she said that, like, the best example of it is John Singer Sargent's portrait of Madame X, which is Virginie Gouffre. And she's been enameled in that painting. Interesting. Yeah. And and she even points out that part of the practice was to leave the tips of the ears and the fingertips unenameled so they appeared pink. So it was like this juxtaposition. So she said that is the best, that is the best example of
0: it. So then it was actually quite effective then if upper class women were doing it. Because in my mind, I'm like, this is like grotesque and like these women's faces are falling off, but if the upper class echelons were doing it in their portraits.
1: Perhaps it actually looked, yeah, real. Yeah. Well, and Eilise points out that it was mainly originally upper-class women that were doing it because it could literally crack. Like, (laughs) you had to kind of be in a certain kind of sphere or setting for this to work. So, sitting for a portrait makes perfect sense because you're not moving.
0: That does make sense. Okay.
1: I was fascinated when Eilise and I first started talking about it. So, I started pulling this thread a little bit further, as I promised, in that episode And what I found out is that one of the most well-known practitioners of this cosmetic art was a London-based cosmetics maven professionally known as Madame Rachel. And this is the point right here in my research where the technique of enameling kind of took a backseat to the story that I uncovered because the story is strange, it's bizarre, it has lots of twists and turns, and all of the information that I used to piece this tale together, came from primary sources. It came from court records from the Old Bailey in London. And this is like maybe the third time that court records from the Old Bailey in London has come up on our show. So it is like this really rich resource there. And then also there was this very meaty booklet or kind of a book that was published um, in 1868 explaining all the ins and outs of the case. And the case itself actually happened in 1868. So it came out immediately immediately after, kind of summarizing what had gone down, and it was available for purchase for one shilling after the trial ended. That that just speaks to the fact of how obsessed people were with this case at that time.
0: Yeah, it's like a gossip rag, right? You can't put it down. Yeah. The People magazine of the day. So this trial was held September 22nd through the 25th of 1868, And it was the topic of that publication, but it was actually the second trial for Madam Rachel as the first one ended in a mistrial or a hung jury. So why that happened, it's not exactly clear, but what the booklet does make clear are the details of the case of Mary Tucker Borodale against her esthetician, Madam Rachel.
1: Born in 1806, Sarah Rachel Russell was born into a respectable working-class family in either London or perhaps Ireland. That is a little bit unclear. And Rachel's first husband, Jacob Moses, died at sea on the return voyage home from Australia in 1859. So Rachel would have been about 53 when her husband passed away. After that, she married Philip Levison or Philip Leverson. There are sources that use either one or both spellings of the, of the last name. And how Rachel came to the profession of beauty may or may not be a parocryphal. According to her, sometime around 1860, quote, she and her family were stricken down by the most fearful fever, which compelled her and them to seek relief at that hospital where she lived nearby when it was found necessary that her head should be shaved. And Cass, I don't know. Like, I'm not exactly sure why a fever requires you to shave your head, but that's what she was telling people at the time.
0: (laughs) No, and actually, I do know, I do know this. Um, brain fever disease, not really a real disease, but was a real disease to medical professionals in the 19th century. But they would like, of course, you know, leeching is the end all be all to medicine, right? So they would shave Mm. their heads and put leeches and various other, you know, medicines on their head to try and cure this fever. So perhaps that's what they thought she had. Uh, Yikes. Yeah. (laughs) Gotta love modern medicine of the 19th century so in continuing to spin this tale Rachel will continue explaining that one of the doctors caring for her provided her with a treatment to regrow her hair that was so miraculous that she asked for the recipe and it's at this point where she quote unquote commenced coloring gray removing wrinkles cheating old age out of its rights and making women quote unquote beautiful forever which happened to also be the title of a 24 page pamphlet she published in 1863 and this pamphlet brought great attention to her shop on the fashionable new Bond Street.
1: However, this was not Rachel's first attempt to enter the beauty trade. A previous incarnation of the business ended in a bankruptcy in 1861, and she served some time in White Cross Street Debtor's Prison after this, which might also not have been her first stint in prison because she also has a criminal record for procurement, which means that she actually put The Madam and Madam Rachel, because she had been previously convicted for procuring prostitutes for gentlemen clients. But with this publication, Beautiful Forever, this pamphlet, and also the ads that she placed in popular newspapers, Rachel reinvented herself. And as Scholar Tammy Whitlock has noted, quote, with a business built on successful advertisements, Madame Rachel was already famous as the best known cosmetics retailer in England when her fraud case went to trial in 1868. So what
0: was she selling, you might be asking? <laughs> the beauty treatment sold by Madame Rachel retailed for somewhere in the range of what would be $65 to $125 today. So not and expensive, and they included products such as Sultana's Beauty Wash and Arab Bloom Powder, and of course, the exotic, you know, nature of the titles of her products are, of course, a reflection of the Orientalism of this period. So, you know, this fantasy of this far and exotic imagined East that would really only continue to pervade mass production and consumption in the age of imperialism and well into the twentieth century. But Rachel did go as far as to validate and support her titles with a claim that she worked with a Moroccan doctor to purchase, quote, an enormous outlay from the government of Morocco, the exclusive right to import for her products like the Magnetic Dew of Sahara and Jordan water.
1: Madame Rachel claimed that with her products, the desired look produced by enameling could be achieved, quote, not by using dangerous cosmetics, but by the use of Arabian baths composed of pure extracts of the liquids of flowers, Choice and rare herbs and other preparations equally harmless and efficacious. She informs us that almost all of our cosmetics, except our own, are composed of deadly leads and other injurious matters, but her preparations are made up of the purest, rarest, and most fragrant productions of the East. End quote.
0: Course they are, and these Arabian baths <laughs> were but one of the treatments Madame Rachel recommended for her client, Mrs. Boradel, a widow whose former husband had served in India, where they had lived for six years, and now back in London, um, she was surviving off the pension left to her by her husband. So Mary might be said to be in somewhat of an unusual financial situation, as her husband had left the estate solely to his wife, which made her financially independent in a period where it was really not that common for a husband to, you know, leave his wife this money. Typically, they would leave it to a male relative to handle on behalf of the widowed wife. And this is actually a really important plot point that we're going to come back to time and time again in the story.
1: Court documents from the period estimate that Mary Boradale's total worth was in the general arena of what would be about $400,000 today. So she wasn't poor, but also she wasn't like ultra, ultra wealthy. What she was, was a sitting duck for Madame Rachel. The two first met in 1864 or 1865, depending on the source, when somehow or another, Rachel ascertained the widow's net worth. In Mary's own words at the trial, quote, I spent 170 pounds with the prisoner in 1864 and 1865 and only got for it some soap and powder. In May 1866, she asked me to spend some more money with her, but I told her I expected her to do something for my skin for the 170 pounds I had already laid out in her shop, end quote. Now, 170 pounds doesn't seem like a ton of money today, but that was in money back then in the 1860s. So, cast using a historic currency converter that was created by the British National Archives, I converted that to what it would be in today's dollars, and it's just under a whopping That is a ton of money that she spent.
0: Yeah, that is a lot of money. And not the last that Madam Rachel would request from Mary. Upon this rejection to spend more money with her, quote, Madam Rachel suggested a mode by which she could be made beautiful forever, asking for a thousand pounds for making her so. And April, using the same converter from the National Archives, this would be a whopping
1: $62,000 today. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, once again, Mary declined these services, and it's around this time that Madame Rachel mentioned, just in passing, that this aristocratic gentleman had seen Mary in her shop and had become, quote, enamored of her, end quote. Rachel suggested that Mary return to the shop, and when Mary did so, she found Lord Thomas Ranlaw there, conversing with Madame Rachel and her daughter. And according to Mary, Madame Rachel introduced them, Lord Ranlaw gave Mary his card, which was printed with his name. Mary then says she returned the card to Lord Ranlaw, that she did not keep it. And Cass, we've already done an episode on etiquette of calling, calling on friends and visitors, which involves a lot of talk about calling cards, which leads me to believe that this whole interaction between Mary and Lord Ranlaw was a bit odd. It would be highly unusual for an aristocratic man to give his card to a middle-class widow like this in this manner in public and even more unusual that if he did so that she would give it back to him that she would return it That's it's it's all strange yeah it
0: all it is all strange i mean i'm used to calling card culture existing like within the home so it's also super interesting that it would be in like this you know shop consumer setting but if the plot thickens. So after two more quote unquote chance encounters with Lord Ranlaw and Madame Rachel's shop, the esthetician revealed to Mary that, quote, his lordship had intimated from time to time that he had never seen any woman besides Mrs. Boradell, who would be such an honor and credit to his name. It now became important that Mrs. Boradell should be acted upon so as to produce her money from the first occasion when she had been told she could be made beautiful forever, and that is so Lord Ranelagh would marry her, end quote. Rachel then let Mary know that his lordship wished to carry out their courtship by way of letters and that he had requested for Rachel to be their intermediary.
1: What now commences over the course of the next three months is a wild matter of debate, <laughs> but what is certain is that the letters were written in exchange, who wrote the letters and for whom the letters were intended, that's where things get unclear. According to Mary, Rachel told her that Lord Ranlaw wished their correspondence to be clandestine because his family did not agree with him marrying a woman without a title. To this effect, Mary says that she was instructed by Rachel to address the letters to William, not Lord Ranlaw. And I just wanna be very, very clear here that Lord Ranlaw's first name was actually Thomas. It wasn't William. Okay. Mary also maintains that every single letter she wrote to her intended, her beloved, her fiancé, was dictated to her by Rachel, that she didn't compose any of the contents of the letters herself. She also said that each time a letter would be written, Rachel would have Mary list her own place of residence, so Mary's place of residence, as a different address. And this becomes an important point in Madame Rachel's defense later.
0: So while the correspondence commences, Mary has now undertaken this process, this very expensive process of becoming beautiful forever under Madam Rachel's direction, largely by way of taking somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred Arabian baths. And the 62000 fee had been paid to the beauty consultant after she connected Mary with her own personal lawyer, Mr. Haynes, who actually assisted Mary dress listeners in liquidating stocks which were part of the pension left to her by her husband.
1: Shady. So
0: shady. Why? (laughs) Um, Why did she do this? So according to Mary, she never saw any of the money. It went straight to Rachel and paid the lawyer fees. And we're not going to get into the detailed accounting of this, but let's just say that the court records point out that the amount of money freed up by the stock sale more than paid for both fees. So the rest, you know, the remainder was unaccounted for.
1: In addition to serving as Mary's beauty consultant, Madame Rachel now stepped in to assist her client in preparation for the wedding and future nuptial bliss, instructing her to buy what would now today be $100,000 of lace and diamonds for her future life as an aristocratic lady. Liquidating real estate at this time, that's how Mary paid for these items, which were delivered into Rachel's care, and Mary claims that she never had physical possession of any of these goods that Rachel had her purchase, quote-unquote, for her wedding, that the only physical goods that she ever had in her possession were the beauty products that she bought from uh, Madam Rachel. Meanwhile, Mary's correspondence with, quote-unquote, William, continues. So just to be clear, she gave Rachel this money
0: to purchase the products, Right but never actually saw the products. So she just gives giving Rachel more and more money because she trusts this woman, obviously.
1: This is also somewhat of a matter of debate because there was apparently some connection at some point with the person that she purchased the diamonds from. It's all very confusing. (laughs) But the money went out. That's all that's important
0: here. Yeah, it's very, I mean, I guess it's becoming increasingly clear that she trusts this woman and she's giving her a ton of money to like ensure, as you said, her nuptial bliss with this man who she's met maybe a handful of times, but has been conducting this love affair with essentially through letters. So noted in the court records is the fact that the letters delivered to Mary by Rachel from, you know, this William, all bore different handwriting, a fact conveniently overlooked by Mary, perhaps. I mean, she was blinded by love. Lord Ranlaw himself attended and also testified at the trial that, quote, I remember seeing Mrs. Borodile on two occasions. Once at Rachel's where I was introduced to her by the prisoner. I never had the slightest intention to marry her. I do not know the person so frequently alluded to here by the name of William. And I never gave Rachel any advice or information about William. Every single word in the letters read
1: in this case, so far as I am concerned, is false. The question then becomes, to whom was Mary writing, and who was writing her back? More on this after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back. I am sure by now that you have all figured out that the love letters Mary was receiving were actually the work of Madame Rachel. The multiple handwriting on the letters was on account of the fact that Madame Rachel did not actually know how to write. Uh, Her daughter often took dictation, as did the shop boys that worked for Madam Rachel. And Mary confirmed that she also took dictation from Rachel in composing the letters that she wrote to William, and that each and every one of these letters were actually Rachel's words, not her own. And this also becomes a sticking point in the trial because many of Mary's letters, which were used as Evidence by the defense were incredibly intimate and personal, and they had all these details in them that just kind of make you know that these two people, like, know each other really well. How did the defense obtain Mary's letters, you might wonder? Well, Rachel claimed that they had been returned to her by, quote-unquote, William for her use in the trial. (laughs) So given the fact that Mary testified that she had only
0: seen Lord Ranlaw three times in Rachel's shop— the defense pointed out time and again, you know, kind of this intimate nature of Mary's letters. So for instance, one of, in one of them, she writes, quote, your sister ought to see that your stockings are mended. I cannot see why she cannot mend them herself and put some buttons on your shirt, end quote. And when the defense lawyer read from one letter to William, I am surprised to find that your flannel should be worn out through. You have not had them more than six weeks. The audience of the trial broke out in laughter at Mary's assertion that these letters were written to a man she barely
1: knew. Yeah, in the pamphlet that was produced like right after the trial ended in 1868, they note how many times within the trial that everyone like burst out laughing about these letters because they're like, clearly there is something else going on here. <laughs> and this clearly something else is going on here was also part of Madame Rachel's defense Rachel tried to discredit Mary's reputation, claiming that she had been involved in extramarital relationships with at least one man, perhaps two, and that she had been staying in disreputable boarding houses. The return addresses provided on the letters that Mary had written seemed to back up this fact because they backtracked and figure out where some of these places were. But Mary claims that the addresses were given to her by Rachel and that she knew nothing about these inappropriate lodging houses. (laughs) She also claimed that before writing the letters to quote-unquote William and later Tom, because William decided that he wanted to be called Tom now, um, Rachel gave her copious amounts of whiskey (laughs) and that she does not recall, and I'm talking about Mary here, Mary says that she does not recall Having written in her own handwriting one letter that says, quote, it is well known in Pembrokeshire that I have been living with you for some months, end quote. And when the defense attorney questioned Mary further on this, she says that she must have, quote, been a lunatic to write such a thing. Okay. I think we can all see now why the public was fascinated with this case. Right, Cass? It's got all the intrigue. What the heck is going on? Who do you believe? I don't know. Like, even after reading all of this, I feel like there's a lot more to the story that didn't come out in the trial. There's a, there's a puzzle piece that's missing, but they're both doing shady things
0: yeah, I guess because I've watched Tender Swindler and Bad Vegan, and I know you have too. Like I yeah. literally just see Mary as the victim, like immediately because there's so many parallels between her relationship with Madam Rachel. And like those narratives, so dress listeners, if you haven't seen those, those shows, you probably want to check them out if you're intrigued by this because they're so fascinating.
1: No, for sure. And, and I, I definitely think she was definitely manipulated. She was definitely a victim. But I'm also wondering because of reading everything and I wasn't able to include everything here, there was something else also happening. Not sure what.
0: Yes, exactly. And I mean, it should actually be noted again in like relationship to these Netflix shows we're talking about. Madam Rachel was continuing to drain her clients' bank accounts. An additional enameling procedure added to the Beautiful Forever Beauty Regimen brought in another $63,000 for Madam Rachel. And Mary was now liquidating her personal possessions, including her silver to pay for the treatments. So in total, over the course of a three-month period, court documents detail 5,300 pounds or $400,333 in total paid to Madam Rachel by Mary. And this is more than the total value of her estate. And at one point, Rachel had taken Mary to a dubious banker to take out a loan or loans.
1: Unable to pay the sums that she owed back, Mary ended up in debtor's prison four separate times in 1867. And this is the very same debtor's prison that Madame Rachel had been incarcerated in six years prior. And at least one of the times that Mary ended up in debtor's prison was at the petition of Madame Rachel's claim for unpaid bills. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Eventually, it would be Rachel who bailed Mary out of debtor's prison, and she did so by extorting her to sign over Mary's very last bit of financial resources, which was her husband's, or her now-deceased husband's, $13,000-a-year military pension, and that's in today's money. You know, Cass, this is complete insanity. This all goes down in the matter of three months, and all, in theory, for the sake of beauty, Beauty and love, I think it should not be understated. Like maybe
0: she was super lonely, right? And this guy gave her attention and Madam Rachel was giving her attention. I mean, the psychology of it all is super interesting.
1: And I think that pulls through to both the documentaries, the Netflix documentaries that we were talking about. So Yeah,
0: because in Bad Vegan, you're like, she keeps taking out millions of dollars and literally giving it to this person. Why? Yeah. So that, you know, there's so many parallels. Mm-hmm. But if you're wondering why Mary's friends and family did not step in to prevent her for financial ruin, they actually did. They tried. Mary's brother in law was a magistrate. He repeatedly tried to intervene in the clear case of fraud that was happening to his wife's sister. He even went so far as tracking down Lord Ranlaw to attempt to confirm their betrothal. And upon arriving at his lordship's residence, the brother in law was turned away at the door, having given what was perceived to be a preposterous explanation explanation for his presence. So that's the other question, right? Did Lord Ranlaw, was he actually a part of this? Was he getting back in money from Madam Rachel or not?
1: It's, I mean, like, why was he just conveniently there a few times when Mary showed up?
0: Yeah. Or was she that genius at, like, manipulating the situation?
1: Yeah. Well, and also, I will say that apparently it came out later that Lord Ranlaw, of course, had this aristocratic title, but he was down on his luck. So that could very much be the case. Mary's friends and family eventually persuaded her of the fraudulent nature of her relationship with her esthetician. And Mary herself in the court proceedings admitted that she was not seeing the miraculous results from this copious number of beauty treatments that she was undergoing. And there is little wonder as to why, because later it came to light that this costly Arabian bath treatment that Mary was taking every single day was simply a combination of water and bran. Oh, no. I know. And also, it came out that one of Madame Rachel's other face washes, which cost what would be about like $65 today, was nothing more than, quote, carbonate of lead, starch, Fuller's earth, which is clay, hydrochloric acid, and distilled water, end quote. And remember, originally, at the beginning of the episode, we read that quote where she claimed that all of her products were natural. I mean, there
0: is no dearth of beauty products from the 19th and early 20th centuries that, like, make all of these beauty claims and use all of these harmful products. Yes. It's so fascinating. It was
1: probably more common than it wasn't, I would argue. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm-hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone.
0: So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. It was not actually the duplicitous nature of her products that landed Madame Rachel in trouble with the law. As scholar Tammy Whitlock noted in her journal article entitled, A Taint Upon Them, The Madam Rachel Case Fraud and Retail Trade in 19th Century England, which appeared in the Victorian Review in 1998, she says, quote, technically Rachel was arrested for defrauding Bordell of her money on the premise of arranging a marriage to Lord Ranlaw, but in the eyes of the public, she was also on trial for her methods of business. Rachel was on trial as a perpetrator of fraud, but she was on quote-unquote trial for her participation in the retail trade, a trade based on the puffery of exaggerated advertisements and the vending of adulterated cosmetics. Mary Boradel was on quote-unquote trial, and of course this is in the trial of public opinion, as a victim her morality and respectability scrutinized to determine whether she should elicit the jury's sympathy. Boradell was also judged for her role as a buyer, a middle class woman selfishly wasting her dead husband's money on luxury goods, end quote. So as is becoming increasingly clear, you know, there's this very gendered nature of this trial and that should not go unnoticed. We've had this long history of associating fashion and beauty with frivolity and women's weakness, right? Yep.
1: Absolutely. They can't help themselves. Yes. <clears throat> the feeble minds, they can't help themselves. Whitlock does go on to say that even at the time, quote, commenters were outraged that Rachel's, quote-unquote, real crime of selling fraudulent products with false advertising remained Untouched by the legal system, Rachel's exceptional business success fueled anxiety about the demoralizing effects of women's participation in the commercial world—a fear also linked to the growing phenomenon of middle-class women's importance as consumers. Women like Mary Boradale freely spending their money at their own pleasure. End quote. And Cass freely spend they did because and especially on cosmetics because the judge at the end of the trial remarked on Rachel's substantial wealth. He noted that her use of a private opera box when she went to the opera and her quote, gaudily furnished house on Maddox Street. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so not only is she participating in this, like, not, you know, great trade, right, this beauty trade, but she also doesn't know how to spend her money yeah. or what to do with
1: it. and also, yeah. like, how did he even, he went to her house and saw how it was decorated, question mark?
0: yeah. <laughs> So, you know, Victorian anxieties surrounding women's agency in the public sphere are evidenced in the copious references to the trial in pop cultural production at the time. So we have playwright W.S. Gilbert's reference to the scandal writing the following stanza into his play, The Pretty Dreadess. In 1869, he says, "Avoid all so-called beautifying dear. Oh, it offends me to the soul to hear the things that men among themselves will say of some soi beauty of the day, whose face, when with cosmetics she has cloyed it, out, Rachel's, Rachel, pray you girls avoid it."
1: <laughs> and there's more where that comes from. I just I threw this one in, <laughs> but there's 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 more out there. You might be wondering how this all played out. So at the urging of her loved ones, Mary eventually attempts to recover her money, first by filing a civil lawsuit against Rachel. This flopped, things did not go well, and subsequently Mrs. Bordedale pressed criminal charges against Rachel. After one jury failed to reach a verdict in August of 1868, a second trial began in September of the same year and apparently, Cass, the jury deliberated for only 15 minutes before they came back and returned with a guilty verdict against Rachel. And this time, Mary was marginally successful in her claim. She was able to recover a little bit of her money. Basically, the court ordered that her husband's military pension, which Rachel had extorted from her while she was behind bars, this was ordered to be returned. Rachel received a sentence of five years hard labor in prison, and this was the maximum sentence that was allowed at the time. The judge talks about it specifically, that he is going to sentence her to the max. And again, on her work on the trial, Whitlock notes that this is a particularly harsh sentence for a female convict for a non-violent offense. And she was apparently released approximately
0: 18 months early and Madame Rachel actually went back and set up her cosmetics business again in 1872. (laughs) She could not (laughs) shake her old habits. In 1878, she was once again sentenced to five years hard labor after defrauding one of her daughter's friends, a Mrs. Purse, of all of her jewelry in exchange for making her, you guessed it, Dress Listeners, beautiful forever. Much like the scam run on Mrs. Bordell, Mrs. Pierce was enticed into Madame Rachel's web with stories of the esthetician's aristocratic connections. This time, she wasn't espousing her connections to a gentleman, but rather Lady Dudley, who Rachel claimed to have made beautiful forever in exchange for costly jewels. And Mrs. Pierce followed suit with her own jewels. And when her husband discovered the scheme, Mr. Purse pressed charges and Rachel returned to prison where she supposedly died in 1880 at the age of 72 years old.
1: Yeah, and we say supposedly at the age of 72, dress listeners, because a rather interesting fact that we haven't mentioned yet is that during the scam run on Mary, Madam Rachel claimed to be 80 years old, which evidence points to the fact that she was likely around 60 And this is hilarious, Cass, because this might be the only known case in history where a woman is going to voluntarily add an extra 20 years to her (laughs) age. And obviously, this was done to support her claims that she was able to halt the aging process in its tracks Mary, at the time of trial, stated her age to be 62. So the two were probably about exactly the same age. And whatever became of Mary, we're not exactly sure. She presumably lived out the rest of her days with additional financial support from her family. And at the very end of the trial, the judge intimated that because of everything that had happened and just kind of like the small amount of money that she ended up getting back, that she was probably gonna have to be supported by the rest of her life, by her family and by her daughter.
0: So dress listeners, that's the end of our story. As we know it, that was a wild ride. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed a little true crime with your dose of fashion and beauty history this week. Let us know if you want to hear more. We had fun kind of digging into this narrative in the past. And until uh, Thursday, dress listeners, may you consider the price of beauty next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episode. And if you'd like to take the time to rate and review the show on their podcast listing platform of choice, it's always appreciated.
1: Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday.